Thank you, and shalom. Shalom. Oh, well done. Many people don't understand Jews for Jesus. They think that it's a, a contradiction or an oxymoron. I guess maybe it's something like vegetarians for roast beef. <laughs> and I had thought that as well, uh, growing up in a Jewish home in New York City. I really didn't know anybody who wasn't Jewish until I was a teenager. I was a student of astronomy and physics, a graduate student at Florida Institute of Technology, doing research on my thesis at the observatory. And every night when it was clear, I'd go to the observatory to do my measurements. And the longer I spent at the observatory looking out into the universe, the darker it looked, the bigger it was, the emptier it was, the more violent it was to me, and the more pointless it was. And so on night after night, when the weather was good and I would do my measurements, I would be confronted with this vast, empty, complicated, dark, and violent world I found myself in, and many of those feelings were inside myself as well. And on this one particular day, I got back to campus, was walking towards my office, and as I got into the building, somebody handed me this. It's Gideon's Bible. And I knew what it was. This was a book for Christians, not a book for Jews. And I didn't know what to do with it. Certainly it wasn't for me. So I was thinking to myself, well, what is the protocol with a Jew and a New Testament? I didn't really know. Do you give it away? Do you throw it away? Do you give it back? I didn't know what to do with it, except I knew that it wasn't for me. It was for Christians. And then I remembered I had a friend. (coughs) I often saw her walking around campus with a Bible. She wore a cross. So I figured I could offload this onto her. So I went up to her office with great haste because I didn't want to be seen around campus with a New Testament. There she was. I was very happy she was in her office. And I went up to her. I reached across her desk. I said, hi, Dr. Petty. The Gideons are downstairs. They're handing these Bibles out. And I got one. And I reached across her desk, handed it to her. I said, it's for you. And then she said what I thought at the time was very bizarre. She said, no, Andrew, it's for you. (laughs) And then I realized she didn't know I was Jewish. So I would tell her she would apologize and she would take this off of my hands. So I said, oh, you don't realize I'm Jewish. And I went again, here, it's for you. And then she said, What was even more bizarre, she said, well, then that's great, Andrew. Then this book is especially for you. (laughs) And I thought to myself, no, it's not for me. It's for you. It's for Christians. It's not for Jews. And she said, Andrew, this is a Jewish book. It's written by Jews. I said, no, it's a Christian book. It's written for Christians. And she said, look, just open it up to the first book and go to the first sentence and read it. So I did. This is what I said. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. And then I thought to myself, what are these Jews doing in the New Testament? (laughs) I was incredulous. I didn't understand what was going on. I was spiritually hungry. And that was the beginning of my journey 
eventually putting my faith and my trust in Jesus and sensing a call to ministry and beginning my ministry in 1983 with Jews for Jesus all over the world, ending up here where there's about 400,000 Jewish people, profoundly affected by the fellowship and the prayers of people on, in campus ministry who provided for me and prayed for me and answered my questions and also gave me things to read. And one of the most important authors that they shared with me was one of the most interesting and effective Christian authors of the 20th century, and his influence even continues to this day in his books, his short stories, his children's stories, his science fiction, his nonfiction movies have been made about his books, uh, C.S. Lewis. And Lewis wrote this book that was given to me that I thought was very odd but touched me deeply called The Great Divorce. And one particular story in The Great Divorce, Lewis was using his imagination to talk about the nature of the love of God. And the story that he wove in his imagination went something like this. There was a man and a woman who lived a long and fruitful life with many children and grandchildren. They eventually passed on to their reward, and the man found himself in hell, and the woman found, himself, the woman found herself in heaven. And the man, it turns out, got lonely and wanted to visit his wife. So he goes to the consulate or the embassy, and he asks for a visa, and he gets one. And he goes to visit his wife in heaven. And upon meeting, she makes a very interesting and tearful confession. She confesses to him that her love for him, while they lived this long and happy life, was only based on one thing. And she said, it was because I needed you. And then he said, well, don't you need me anymore? She said, no, I'm in heaven. I'm always full, never empty. I am always in love, never lonely. I am always strong, never weak. And then she said, let me show you around. Here in heaven, nobody needs each other. But it's the only place where we can truly love one another. You see, what Lewis was trying to teach us in this imaginary conversation is that in heaven, we will be able to love one another the way God loves us right now. Because my friends, in Christ, what does God need? What does he require? What must he get? Nothing. Yet what does he provide? What does he give? What does he send? Everything. And isn't that what real love is supposed to be like between the lover and the beloved? The lover gives everything without a desire at all to get. The beloved receives everything. It doesn't cost them anything. That's what real love is like. Real love longs to serve God and give your life to Him, but you're supposed to do it without expecting anything back. Is He going to reward and provide according to His riches and glory? Well, yes. But real love is something much more radical than that. It means that you do things you didn't think you could do. You say things you didn't think you could say. You serve and you suffer in places you never thought you could go because he loved us first. The scripture this morning will surprise you. It's about an unlikely lover of the Jews. It's life-changing. It's filled with surprises. 
It's about a man who might surprise you as a lover of the Jews. And as we read this text, I want you to find yourself there with me. Luke chapter 7, <coughs> 1 to 10. After he'd finished saying all this, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death who was highly valued by him. The centurion heard of Jesus. He sent some elders of the Jews asking him to come heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this. He loves our nation. He's the one who built our synagogue. Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, don't, I did not presume to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Turning to the crowd that followed, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. If you know Luke, you know that Luke likes to surprise us. Luke likes to put things and people and situations together that don't make any sense. So, if you're a fan of Luke, is my sound coming out? You hear me okay? If you're, <coughs> if you're a fan of Luke, and as you read Luke, you'll see these very unusual situations that he creates. And he puts things together that don't make any sense. <coughs> Men and women, old and young, children and adults, educated, uneducated, religious, not religious. You'll see that he does this to make a point and to jar our attention. The first great surprise is a centurion who is filled with faith in Capernaum. This should set our hair on fire. A Roman soldier who loves the Jews. A man who is hated and loathed and despised by the Jewish people. The smartest, most outrageous, the most well-paid, a ruthless killer of men, the most experienced, the best trained that there was. If you were a centurion, your men feared you more than they feared the enemy. He was despised by the Jewish people. He represented the heavy yoke of Rome on Israel. The Jews hated them. And yet here is a man who is said to love them and love the God of Israel, a man who believes in the healing power of Jesus. But then all of this takes place in Capernaum. A centurion who loves the Jews, who is filled with faith in a place of darkness and unbelief. Capernaum was notorious as a place of darkness. It's the faith of the centurion. The darkness of Capernaum, Jesus in Capernaum. Jesus goes to Capernaum quite regularly. 
Another point of contention. Why would Jesus go to a place regularly, probably for rest and refreshment, this place that he goes to, it was like the cottage that he would go to. It was like cottage country. He'd go there regularly for rest and refreshment. But this was a place of darkness and unbelief. And so all of this is going on in order to jar the reader. A centurion? Jesus? Loves Israel? Capernaum? None of it really makes any faith, any sense. This context of faith in Capernaum. And then this man, the centurion, in the Roman army all of his adult life, Educated, experienced, well-trained, well-paid, despised and feared by his soldiers and despised by the Jewish people. A man filled with faith for the God of Israel and the healing power of Jesus in verse 3 of Luke chapter 7 tells the elders of the Jews about the healing power and authority of Jesus and lo and behold, will you believe it? They believe him. Can you believe it? The elders believed the centurion about a rabbi that they despised. And everybody believed that Jesus could do this. The elders believed it. The crowds believed it. The disciples believed it. Everyone believed that Jesus had the power and the authority over sickness and death. But would he do it? And so strangely enough, the elders of the Jews who despise the centurion go to Jesus, a rabbi that they don't trust, on behalf of a centurion that they despise. None of that makes any sense. And they believe that Jesus had the authority over sickness and death. So Luke is just messing with our minds in putting all of these situations and people together in a way that jars our attention. But then it gets even worse, where they go to Jesus, and the Scripture says that they go with great passion. Look at the Scripture. Look at what he says. They come to him, and they plead earnestly with him. They plead with great emotion. Why would the elders of the Jews who were teachers of the law, go to a rabbi that they despise on behalf of a centurion that they hate and plead earnestly with him. And then it gets even worse because they say in verse 5, he is worthy. Well, now, that's just too much because he wasn't. He was the definition of unworthy. He was a Roman soldier. He was uncircumcised. He was defiled. He was unclean. He was polluted according to the laws of Moses and the custom of the day. He couldn't go into a Jewish person's home or that house would become defiled. A Jew couldn't go into his house or that Jewish person would be defiled. This was the law of Moses and the custom of the day. If you touched somebody who was uncircumcised, touched somebody who was bleeding or dead, or leprous, you became defiled according to the laws of Moses and the customs of the day. Moses told Israel to be separate. And part of that separateness were these laws of holiness. 
and they needed to be separate to be part of the people of God. And if they were accidentally defiled, then they would need to be separated and then baptized before they could enter into the community. This man was defiled in his flesh. He was unclean and uncircumcised. But the Jewish people say that, no, he is worthy. Why do the leaders and the elders and the educated among them say that a man who is unworthy is worthy? Well, it says, because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. His love was a do-so love, not just a say-so love. He worked and he toiled and he labored for those that he loved. He loved and he built. He's in Capernaum. He loves the Jews. He loves the God of Israel. He sees a plot of land next to the sea and he buys it. He hires somebody to build that synagogue and to create the architectural plans. He worked with Jewish people who probably despised him, but he probably paid them well. And then he builds this synagogue, which required quite a level of expertise and a significant amount of money. It's outfitted with all the utensils and the scrolls and the scriptures that are needed for the reading of the Bible and for worship and for study. And he sees people coming and going enjoying the God of Israel, and don't you know, he was not allowed to go inside. <laughs> he worked and he toiled and he labored and he didn't expect anything back. He knew he wasn't going to be able to go inside because it says in verse 6, it says, I am not worthy. He knew that he was defiled. He knew that he was unclean. He knew from the moment that he set his eyes on that plot of land and the thought came to him that he was going to build that synagogue because he loved the God of Israel, that he wouldn't get a chance to go inside. And that is the lesson for us this morning. He was unfit, but he was fit. <laughs> he was unworthy, but he was worthy. This is the stuff of the kingdom of God, isn't it? Because all of us are inside of that story. We know that if we live long enough, we'll find that place inside of us that's unfit and unworthy and unclean and crooked and we'll take all of that sin and we'll leave it at the foot of the cross and God's grace is greater than all of that and we are one in the same unfit and fit, unworthy, worthy, dirty, clean, nothing, everything. That's the kingdom of God, isn't it? At the root of that unfitness was his fitness. He was weak, but he was strong. He was foolish, but he was wise. He was a spectacle, but he was honored. Job lost his family, lost his health, lost his money. He went out to the garbage dump, and he sat at the dump, and he looked up, and he said, Lord, I have nothing, but I have everything because I have you. That's the kingdom of God. Verses 7 to 10, just say the word. That's all that we need. Love that was rooted in faith, but faith that had the power to build something that he couldn't go in. He loved Israel because of his faith in the God of Israel. What did he receive? What did he get? What did he benefit? Well, nothing except the most important thing, the kingdom of God ruling and reigning in his heart because that love that grabbed the centurion was not discreet or wise or sensible. It turned him into the person that he was. 
The Apostle Paul had that love for the church at Corinth. This is what he said, I'll gladly spend and be spent and expended for your souls. He said to them, look, I don't care if you love me or not. I'm willing to be destitute if that's what it takes to get you closer to the Lord. God so loved the world that he sent his son. God demonstrated his love. And that while we were yet sinners, the Messiah died for us. So God is the lover. He gives up, some, he gives up himself. He gains or profits nothing. We are the beloved. We gain everything. It costs us nothing. And that's always the way it's supposed to be, isn't it? Between the lover and the beloved. If you are the lover, you give up everything. You gain nothing. If you are the beloved, you gain everything and it costs you nothing. That's always, always the way it's supposed to be. Now when it comes to the gospel and the Jewish people, often we want to give up nothing. We want it to cost nothing. But there's a heavy price to be paid when associating with the gospel and the Jewish people. Jesus didn't love silently. He fed, he healed, he raised the dead, he cast out demons, and he said, unless you repent, you too will perish. And this is our hard lesson. If you love the Jewish people, you will not be silent. God has put this building here, across the street, from this enormously rich and powerful and entrenched and self-satisfied Jewish community. What do you do? I don't know. I would suggest that when you have your prayer meeting on Wednesday night, you take a little time and you go outside and you raise your hands across the street and pray that God would pour out His Spirit and His power and His anointing on, and He would bless those people and that He would make Himself known to them. For goodness sakes, I've spent 35 years of my life sharing Christ with Jewish people. And we pray every day that there'd be an outpouring of His Spirit upon my people, but you are perfectly placed simply to go outside of your building and raise your hands across the street and just pray that God would touch, that he would bless, that he'd make himself known to these people. There are strong forces at work, aren't there? Multiculturalism and tolerance and pluralism. We're afraid to identify and to proclaim God's truth with a capital T, but the truth will often demand some kind of confrontation. It must be righteous confrontation, but there will still be some element of confrontation nevertheless. Practice humility, practice respect and tolerance, but face confrontation, face unbelief with courage and with resolve. The Scripture tells us that we have to be beyond reproach, but to be beyond reproach, we have to be a reproach. We are weak. We're a spectacle. We're fools. We're a stumbling block. Yet our message is the power of God unto salvation. This is the difficult task that's ahead. Truth, with a capital T, demands some kind of confrontation. And we can't use the word love and friendship and tolerance to avoid it. The gospel stands out as a truth to this world, all people, with a capital T. It is often seen as a message that's foolish, a stumbling block that divides, confronts the human heart. But the centurion, 
He was unfit, but he was fit. He was unworthy, but he was worthy. He was unclean, but he was clean. He was a spectacle, but he was honored. He was weak, but he was strong. He was seen as foolish, but he was wise. The challenge for us is this. Are you willing to love somebody so much that you'd be willing to build them something you couldn't go in yourself? Trust in God. He can heal that servant, but he can do the greater thing. He can heal that sick heart that is separated from him. These are the kind of people that we need if we're going to make a difference to this enormous Jewish community that you find yourself in. In Israel, there's a geographical illustration for being this kind of person. It's taken from the eastern spine of Israel. If you're familiar with the geography, you know that the eastern spine of Israel is dominated by these three great bodies of water. The Sea of Galilee, the River Jordan, and the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is said to be alive. It's living. Well, why is the Sea of Galilee living? Well, it's living because it gives away everything that it gets. The Sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountains. In the winter, it snows. The snow melts into the water table. And the Sea of Galilee just takes all, takes it and takes it and takes it. And it floods into the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee just gives it all away into the Jordan. That's why it's alive. It gives up everything that it gets. And if you jump into the Sea of Galilee, it's alive, it's fresh, it's living, it's sweet, it's filled with life. And then as you go down the Jordan, you come to a body of water that's dead. And do you know why it's dead? It keeps everything that it gets. And the scripture says that one day the, sea of Gal- the Dead Sea is going to learn how to do something. It's going to learn how to give. And when the Dead Sea learns how to give, what's it going to do? It's going to come alive. But if you're like that, who can use you? Can the church use you? Can the family use you? Can anybody use you? The kind of people that we need are the kind of people who give away everything that they get, knowing that God provides according to his riches in glory. This is the power of God. So in the ministry that I'm involved in, in the ministry that I work in, I work among 400,000 Jewish people here in Canada. There's about 200,000 here in Toronto, about 100,000 in Montreal, another 100,000 spread out across the rest of Canada. And the vast majority of those Jewish people When they hear the gospel, they hear the gospel from people like you. Christian friends and neighbors and co-workers and classmates and peers on campuses, just the way I did. That's how Jews are hearing the gospel. It's in the marketplace. If you want to have an adventure in sharing Christ, share Christ with Jews. One of the most exciting and interesting projects that I've had the privilege to work on is a new outpost that we've established in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has always been a very difficult place for us for many, many years. You may not realize this, but Jerusalem, a million Jews, is the poorest city in Israel. It's the city with the highest level of unemployment and poverty and sex trafficking in the country. It's the place where God says his presence dwells. And we've had the privilege of establishing a brand new outpost in Jerusalem through an outreach that we did there. And I have a short video this morning that I want to share with you to share with you some of the enthusiasm that we have for what God is doing in Israel and around the world.
It's a very short video, so if you could show it now, I'd appreciate it. I'm Dan Serrett and I'm the Israel Director of Jews for Jesus. We've mapped out Israel. We've noticed that there are 12 different geographic regions and this is by far the most exciting outreach that we've employed here in Israel. We're here in Jerusalem with the University and Yeshiva team. Brought tons of cases of bottled water and hand them out. Been able to talk to a lot of people. What's happening here is an event that we've called Art Never Stops and it's a kind of jam, painting and sculpting. It's really fun to get a group of people together and see how people really bond and build connections. We have been in the muck and mire of this little river just cleaning out trash to just love on the people of Israel. And the salvation stories of what God has worked during this month-long campaign. Russian speakers still are the most open to the gospel. We're going to take you in and see a house we've been working on. It's a woman who's working as a prostitute and as part of our team to reach out to the homeless, drug addicted and prostitutes. We're just fixing up her home to share the love of Christ. We're reaching out to Orthodox women and we're reaching into a community that for many years and in many ways has been unreached with the gospel. What does Mashiach do then? If we all sin, we, we need help. Mashiach, you're praying for it, is the same one that Christians are praying for him for return. How could we really impact a larger percent of the population. So we began to pray together and toss around ideas and do some design thinking. A bunch of guys teams and girls teams are competing. Never would have thought it happened this fast. Selling some of our handmade items and then talk about who we are and things like that. Looking for opportunities to engage the community. We're hoping to see these kinds of stories of change all across the city. very much need your involvement and your prayers on the table in the lobby. I have a table with books and literature and some cards. These are contact cards. Love for you to pray for us. The card comes in two pieces. You can take home a prayer card and use that as a reminder to pray for us. This contact card, you can fill out your address and your email and receive our regular newsletters. We'd love for you to be involved that way to receive our information into your inbox, into your mailbox so that you can pray for us. There's some books out there as well, a few that I recommend. This is called Witnessing to Jews, Practical Ways to Relate the Love of Jesus to Jewish People. Most Jews hear the gospel from people like you. If you want to have an adventure in sharing Christ, share Christ with Jewish people. This book will help you to understand a little bit about the Jewish mindset and how Jews respond to the message of the gospel. This book is very popular. It's called Stories, Stories of Jews for Jesus. It's a book of 15 chapters. Each chapter tells the story of a Jewish person and how they gave their lives to Christ. I especially like this book because my testimony is on chapter 12. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your text this morning and your servant, the centurion. Help us, Lord, to be like him. That the power of God would reside in our lives and that we'd be willing to build things for people that we couldn't go in ourselves. Help us to find ourselves inside of that story and to be challenged by the truth of Messiah. Bless us now, we pray, as we continue to look to you in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.